And good morning, church family. There's no storm in life Jesus can't conquer. There's no storm of life Jesus can't walk over. There's no storm that defines who Jesus is. There's no storm that has to define who you are. Storms often come without us inviting them. They just come in life. Storms leave destruction, but storms don't get the last word. We've been in a series talking about, for about seven weeks, storms and anchoring in the storm. Yesterday, April 3rd, was an anniversary. How many of you, uh, and this is, may age some of you, how many of you were alive in 1974, just a show of hands? On April 3rd of 1974, there was a super outbreak. At the time of, in recorded history, there had never been more tornadoes touch ground in the United States then on April 3rd, 1974, around 150 tornadoes in 12 different states. Hundreds of people lost their lives. There was billions of dollars of property damage that was done. And coming out of that, there are meteorologists who talked about how, as they looked back and evaluated those storms, it prepared them better of how do you get the word out? How do you help prepare people for when storms will come later on? That was the day of more tornadoes in recorded history until 2011 when there were close to 250 tornadoes to touch ground. Hundreds of people lost their lives, billions of dollars of property damage. And for any storm that some of us have ever been through in life, whether physical or metaphorical, storms can cause a lot of damage. Storms come sometimes when we don't expect them to come. But then there's always new life that comes after storms. You often have community or the church and people who surround each other, helping them recover from storms. And this is what our God does. No matter what storm we face in life, whether physical, metaphorical, psychological, social, whatever it may be, we have a God who comes to recreate and redeem and restore. So for seven weeks, we've been talking about anchoring in the storm, that there are storms ha that happen in life, and how do we prepare ourselves to anchor in them? Uh, some of you have had, some of your elders have worked with some of the shepherding groups, processing the, the book I wrote to go along with the series, just helping us to anchor strong as we go through this series. Some of you have used it as a devotional book. I'm thankful for the stories that have come in to me from some of you of how you have anchored stronger in God in this season leading up to Easter. I often pray for my boys, and often my prayer for them is that God would help them to anchor well now, to anchor now in preparation for when the storms of life come. And there are times when I find myself praying for my boys, and in my prayer time, I'll say, God, you know, when I'm praying over my boys right now, this is the same thing I've, I want for the church. And there are times I pray for the church, and in and, and, and that prayer time, I'm like, you know, God, this, the same thing I'm praying for the church right now, this is what I want for my boys. I want us to anchor well. It is hard to anchor when you're in the middle of a raging storm. But it's never too late for you to anchor in your life. It's never too late for you to anchor in God. I've had the privilege and the honor of baptizing two people over the last couple of weeks. Both of these people had never attended an in-person worship service in our church, only online, only virtual. Both of these people, it was an act of obedience in their lives. They had received an invitation in and through this church into God. 
they had taken that seriously. A lot of times before I baptize people, I want to hear their story. I want to hear what they're wrestling with in life. And, and both of these people, when they met with me, they had done their homework. They had been doing work with God. And it was one of those moments of like, who am I or who are, with, or who are we to withhold the waters of baptism from them? These, these were uh, adults in their life. Like It is never too late for you to anchor in your life. Over the next few weeks in the life of this church, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the church. Why the church is important, why the church was launched. And what I want to help argue in the weeks to come is that Jesus didn't die only for you to have a personal relationship with Jesus for the rest of your life. That, that isn't the only purpose of why Jesus died. Jesus didn't just die for social issues or social change, as important as some of that is. Jesus died to launch a movement called the church, and this was God's plan A, and there's no plan B. As messy as the church can be, as wounded as some of us have been by the church in our past, this is God's plan to restore the entire world, to launch a multi-ethnic, multi-generational movement that takes seriously the whole story that we're celebrating this weekend, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter nine, if you uh, Hebrews chapter six, if you want to turn in your Bibles there uh, this morning, there'll be a couple of places we'll be in Hebrews six, and we've used this as an anchor over the last few weeks. And it says this: God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope we set uh, hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And in verse nineteen, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison uh, were good friends. These guys created music together. They wrote music. They toured together. And Roy had about two decades of his life where he did not create any new music. It wasn't until the late 80s that he started creating new music again. And that's when uh, people like Bruce Springsteen found his music and kind of like resurrected his career. Not just his career, but helped Roy begin to produce music again. Roy had a family, was married, three sons. In 1966, Roy and his wife, they were riding motorcycles together. And as they were just enjoying a day of riding their motorcycles, his wife was hit by a truck that had swerved into their lane. She, she died. Two years later, while Roy was on tour, he was over in Europe, he had his two youngest sons were at home playing with a, playing with a flammable can and it happened that it caught fire. The whole house burned down. His two youngest sons died in that fire. After that, he became a recluse. Moved in with his parents. Basically just lived in a basement. Johnny Cash went to visit Roy one day. And as he did, Roy was just sitting on a couch, just staring at the TV. And, and Johnny Cash tried to let Roy know that I, he, he, how much he loved him, how much he was going to be there for him, no matter what. Roy just didn't know how to process his grief. And Johnny Cash asked if he could purchase the land where the house had burned down. And Roy ended up selling it to Cash. But Roy said, I'm going to sell it to you, but I do not want you to rebuild a house there. And Cash agreed to it. And instead what Cash did is he, he built and created a garden and an orchard. His commitment to Roy was only good is going to grow here. 
The only thing was, months went by and nothing would grow. So one of the stories, the way it goes is, that Johnny Cash invited all the pastors, a number of pastors from where he was living at the time, to come and to pray over that field, that new life would come there. And then shortly after, there was new life. This garden, this orchard, this, this sign of new creation. Roy had been estranged from his oldest son for years. And Roy and his son Wesley ended up reconnecting. And then they had this night where they stayed up late telling stories. And they even wrote music together. And the next morning, Roy had a heart attack and he died. And a few years later, Johnny Cash looked outside and there was Wesley, Roy's son, who was walking through this orchard. And Johnny Cash went out to Wesley and just asked what he was doing. And Wesley said that he just liked to come and walk around in that place of new creation because there, that's where he felt peace. Cash ended up selling that property, giving it to Wesley. New creation can come from anything. New creation is always possible. There's nothing that God can't recreate or restore or redeem in some kind of way. This is the hope of what we celebrate today. That what God did for Jesus and bringing Him out of a grave is what God can do for all of us and all creation. This is what our God does. And if you look at the four Gospels, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all tell the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But all of them put in a few details that no one else shares. Like it's, it makes it so unique. I think this is why the Bible, one of the arguments of why the Bible is so believable. You have four people with almost four different accounts and little nuggets that they share. John is the one who shares that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was mistaken as a gardener. Like they didn't even know it was Jesus. They thought he was a gardener. And, and many people argue that this is part of John's argument that what Jesus has done, Jesus is bringing new creation into the world. In the garden is where all things went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. And in the garden is where Jesus makes all things right through his resurrection. The Gospel of Luke, after the resurrection of Jesus, there's this meal, and it's in the breaking of bread that eyes are open to see who Jesus is. In the Gospel of Mark, you have a guy who ends up, they, he's about to be arrested and by people and they rip off his, his robe and he's just running naked. And that's, that's like how the first ending of the Gospel of Mark, that's, that's how it ends. A, a guy, he's a streaker. There's fear. Like they're so fearful. What are you going to do with the power of the resurrection? And the way Matthew's Gospel, the way his story goes about the resurrection of Jesus is like this. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 50. It says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, not bottom to top, top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. And the next couple of verses, it talks about how there were dead people who came to life, who began walking around. And there are those who argue that what happens here is that Matthew is blending together the past, the present, and the future, that Jesus has transformed all things. And Matthew isn't the only one who talks about a veil that is split. 
But when Jesus dies in Matthew's gospel, he talks about how this veil is torn in two. This was a veil that was heavy. It was bulky. It was like unbreakable. It was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. This, is, this was from the book of Exodus, like early on in the law. This had lasted hundreds of years. People knew about this curtain. Now, at their best, for the people of God, at their best, what this meant was that the presence of God dwells in the most holy place. And, and, and I think at their best, they didn't believe that that's the only place God dwells, but it represented the place of God's holiness, where only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and only once a year. Like, this is a big deal. At their best, they believed that the most holy place on the other side of that veil was the holy God, and they wanted to live a holy life because of how holy God was. Like, it transformed who they were. Now, at their worst, what it meant... At their worst was like God dwells in there and we're out here. And as long as we don't do anything too bad to make God too mad, like God's in there and we're out here. And that's kind of how they live their lives. Let's just go offer sacrifices a few times a year. But God's in there as if that is the place that has like locked in the presence of God. And as you read the resurrection of Jesus, the veil that was thought to separate the people from the holiness of God is torn down. This place in Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about Jesus being the anchor for us, says this in Hebrews 6, verse 18 through 20, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Just that image of Jesus being a forerunner. Like Jesus goes before us where his body was torn, just as a curtain is torn, so that we could have undeniable eternal access to God, where you don't have to go through a high priest anymore, or through a priest, or through a sacrifice. The veil has been torn, and now access has been granted. This whole tearing of the veil, what it means is, there is nothing that the presence of God cannot break out of and can't help someone else break out of. Through God's power, if God's able to burst out a stone, like to remove a rock, to bring Jesus back to life, what can God not break out of? There's no grave that can hold Jesus. There's no illness that Jesus can't conquer? Like, what can God not do? What in your life can God not help you break out of? There's nothing that can contain the presence and the power of God. So back in the 70s, there was a store up in Roseville, Minnesota. It was called Sound of Music. Now, how many of you almost want to start singing a song when you hear just Sound of Music, right? It had nothing to do with the movie. It was a store, it was an electronic store. Now, this was the 70s, so I don't want you to think about AirPods and cell phones and flat screen TVs and laptops. Those things didn't exist, but it was an electronic store. On June 14th of 1981, there was a tornado that ripped through the town, destroyed the store. And it left electronics and merchandise just littered, I mean, littered it all over the parking lot. Richard Schulz, 
who was the owner of the store, had an idea. So none of the employees were injured in the storm. So we had them go find the merchandise and take the merchandise that wasn't damaged inside of the store. And they put it out on tables in the parking lot. And then they decided what they were going to do is they were going to cut the prices, slash the prices. And then they were going to advertise like crazy. Now this was 1981, so it's not like they could do a Facebook or Instagram blitz to let everybody know there was going to be a, a sale, a parking lot sale. So, but they got on radio stations, on TV stations. They, they wanted to get the word out. So... One day, they didn't know how many people would show up. They called it a tornado cell. And then sure enough, people lined up for miles to come and to walk through this parking lot to purchase merchandise and all these electronics. And then the strategy of the store shifted. And the strategy for th from then on wasn't let's sell things out of parking lots. They ended up going back inside where they had a building, but they thought, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to offer low-cost electronics for people. We want to advertise like crazy. And we, wanna, we want a space where people can walk through and there's space for them to kind of spread out and experience some of these things. What was called a tornado sale in 1981... They also advertised it as a Best Buy, which two years later, they changed their name from Sound of Music to Best Buy, which today is an annual, I mean, they, they sell about $50 billion of electronics, over 200,000 employees, over 4,000 locations. And I don't want to say that Best Buy rose from the ashes, because I don't think it really did, but through a tornado, there was a new strategy. Like what can, like what, what storm can our God not take to do something beautiful and redemptive with your own life, with the world, and with all of creation? I was invited to speak at a church in Little Rock in the summer of 2019. They asked me to come just be a guest speaker. There was a sermon I had preached at Sycamore View a few months before that from Mark chapter 2 where Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed. And before Jesus healed the man who was paralyzed, Jesus forgave his sins. And the way I preached the sermon here was that Jesus cares about our bodies being set right, but Jesus cares just as much about our mind and our heart being set right, and that it's possible for our bodies to be set right even in this world, yet for us to carry with us the shame and the guilt of our past, it keeps us from living into our freedom. As I preached the sermon here at Sycamore View on a Sunday morning, a Saturday night I had a dream, and this doesn't happen to me all the time, but I had a dream. And I knew I was about to preach in front of this church. I was about to preach in front of you talking about how that God forgives your sins. And one of the greatest challenges in your life is that some of you believe your sins are forgiven, but you carry with you the shame and the guilt of sins of your past, which is one of the strategic moves of the enemy of Satan today, where he knows there is nothing he can do to keep the blood of Jesus from covering you, but he wants to fill you with guilt and shame to keep you from living into your freedom. And the dream I had that night, it was a dream of me preaching this sermon. I was preaching this sermon in my dreams. I was standing on the stage, and as I looked out, there were these red balloons. And a red balloon symbolized, in my dream, and I know this sounds weird, a red balloon symbolized guilt and shame that hovered over people 
that's keeping them from living into their freedom. And in my dream, I looked up to God, even though the face of God wasn't there in my dream. I said, God, please tell me there are only one or two of these in the Sycamore View Church. And as I looked out in my dream, as I looked out over the church, there were dozens of them. So that morning, I decided to tell the dream in my sermon. And I wasn't expecting the pastoral load, which was an honor that I would have the next week. So many of you came to me talking about how that red balloon symbolized you, like it hovers over you. So I went to Little Rock in this church and I shared that story. And that morning, there just happened to be a 19-year-old kid. I say kid, he's 19 years old. Who kind of just stumbled into church that day. This is a drug addict. Strung out on drugs, alcohol, tough past. And he heard that dream. Convicted him to the core. He was baptized into Jesus that Sunday afternoon. And just a few days ago, I received a message from the church where I preached a year and a half ago. And they told me that Tyler, that's his name. This past week, Tyler graduated from a drug rehab program. An intense drug rehab program. And here in this picture, this is Tyler who is sharing his testimony in front of a church. And part of his testimony was about a red balloon that hovered. Right? That God came and God popped. That led him on this journey of living into freedom in God, freedom in Christ. Like there is nothing God can't redeem, reclaim, recreate. Back in 2018, I had a chance to go over to Israel. And the last day of our trip, we went to the garden tomb, which is where some people think this may have been the place where Jesus rose from the dead. And it's like, we don't know. And I think it's funny when you talk to tour guides over there, you're like, where do you think it happened? And most of their responses, and I think it's like just a universal response, is we don't really know because Jesus wasn't in the ground long enough for us to mark it. (laughs) He wasn't there long enough. And the garden tomb is a place that would have been very much like the tomb Jesus was placed in. We know Jesus was placed in a tomb of a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea. And the way it works there is it's one tomb and there's an entrance and there's an exit. You enter into it where you can experience kind of what it was like, what Jesus would have been placed in, and then there's an exit. And then there are all these little places where your group can go and can have a worship experience. So uh, we had about 80 people in our group. My mom and dad had a group of about 40 in front of us, and then we had a group behind them. And there are rules in this place. that You enter into the tomb, you're not supposed to take pictures, and then you exit out. And my mom broke all the rules that day. Because moms can do that, right? Because our family, since my sister died in 2010, the tomb is empty. It's been like our rallying cry. It's been an anthem for us. And my mom often wears a shirt called Jenny's Hope, which is the counseling clinic, the grief center she launched a few years ago. So that day, in the place, has transformed the history of the world. My mom had her shirt on, and my mom went the way she wasn't supposed to go because she wanted to see Casey and me come out of the tomb. And there's a picture of my mom just looking and waiting. And part of it is, I know my mom can't wait to see the day when her daughter is put together and that they are reunited. 
And she wanted to see, she wanted to see like her people come out of a grave. And Casey and I walked out of the grave and immediately Casey and my mom just ran and they, they embraced. And it was a long hug. I got a little offended because I'm my mom's son. Casey wasn't born into my family, all right? Uh, but it was a long hug. And then we embraced. I want you to think about this image this morning. That in some ways what my mom represents in this picture is a host of heaven that are cheering on so many of you. And some of you need to hear today, it is time for you to enter into a grave. And not only to enter into it, because some of you have entered into it, but you're in there and it's time for you to step out, to, to come into the light, to, to respond to the invitation of Jesus of God, to come to life in every way and some of the ways, maybe the way we need to see this image today is that we are in the place of where my mom is and we're going into the world and this needs to be how we live and what we live for is that we live to anticipate, to see other people around us Step into a grave, step into death with God to come to life. This is the resurrection that spreads in and through the church everywhere. This is the victory that says there is no storm in life that, defend, that defines who you are. For Jesus defines who we are. And Jesus, this day, we celebrate, this is the day Jesus says, no matter what you have gone through or where you are, we march forward in and through this day in a, in a posture of victory. So can we stand together? And let's declare this song as our anthem today.